2: Predator-free offshore islands have been crucial for the survival of endangered wildlife here in Aotearoa. Tiritirimatangi, Urupukapuka, Kāpati, Ulva, the list goes on. Over a hundred offshore islands have been rid of mammalian predators. Motu Ihupuku, Campbell Island, is the largest to date at 11,300 hectares, with rakiura Stewart Island, over 15 times this area, and inhabited, lined up as an ambitious next. But where was first? The answer is Tiny Ruapeke or Maria Island, a little lump of rock and soil, just two hectares in size, one of the Noises Islands in the Hauraki Gulf. Kia ora, no mai hara mai hurihanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko te in fact, it was the
0: late 50s when a school teacher from Waiheke came over here and he had a love of birds,
2: and he realised that the white-faced storm petrels were being decimated by rats. Sue Neureuter is one of the custodians of the Noises Island group, and she tells me the history of Rui Islands as we stand on its highest point looking out to sea.
0: He was outraged to see these little birds being decimated, so he went back to Waiheke and got a very, very small grant, um, with forest and bird, and got advice from the Wildlife Service, which included, I think, Don Merton at the time. And they came back here and thought, oh, well, you know, they'll try and reduce the rat population. But what they actually did is they wiped them out. And so that was the first time, I think, scientists and researchers realised it was actually possible to get rid of an entire invasive species.
2: It took a while for the birds to rebound, says Sue, But now we're standing at the top of the island, on a boardwalk, put here, because there are so many seabird burrows around.
0: The white-faced storm petrels are the predominant ones, but there's fluttering shearwaters and there's an area with grey-faced petrels, a couple of areas with grey-faced petrels, and penguins. So, you know, and they all breed at slightly different times, that's why there's a difficulty in getting on here. But it's pretty special, it's really special.
2: On the island with us is a group of researchers from Tamaki Pāngahira, Auckland War Memorial Museum, including curator of land vertebrates and seabird specialist Dr Matt Rayner. He reaches into one of the little burrows and pulls out a dainty bird, who immediately makes an impression. Oh, he's just pooed across me.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. You you are yeah, marked.
2: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair. I mean, we've just pulled him out of his little
1: burrow. Yeah. So this is a white-faced storm petrel, Pelagodroma uh, mariner. And this one, you'll see, this one's got a little leg band on them, And the reason for that is part of the project that we're working with Auckland Council on is figuring out how many white-faced storm petrels are actually on this island because it's a regionally significant population. There's a lot here. And so we've been coming out for the last couple of years and banding these birds doing a mark recapture study is looking at the ratio of banded to unbanded birds and figuring out, you keep capturing birds and the ratio tells you how, uh, through a bit of math how many birds are on the island so the current data say there's at least five and a half thousand birds on this island but probably there's a lot more when it gets dark it rains storm petrels here
2: is that one of the bigger populations in the Hauraki Gulf?
1: Yeah, yeah, within the Hauraki Gulf uh, Marine Park, it, it possibly is the largest population, although uh, the Mokahino Islands have, have got quite a large population as well. But, um, you know, we're only uh, 20 kilometres from Auckland here. It's pretty cool.
2: Pretty cool indeed. The noises are a chain of islands, rock stacks and reefs in the inner Hauraki Gulf. The main island is about two kilometres north of Rakino Island. Look northwest and you'll see Tiretiri Matangi and Shakespeare Regional Park. South, Waiheke Island, and west the beaches of Torbay and Brands Bay. The island group has been owned by the Neureuter family since 1933, when Sue's great uncle bought it from a retired ship captain for two hundred pounds. In nineteen ninety-five, the family formed the Noises Trust to help ensure long-term protection, and the islands were gifted to the trust. The family's goal is to continue the history of conservation research and education on and around the Noises. To do this, they collaborate with many different groups, including Manafenoa Natai Kitamaki, Tamaki, Auckland Council, the University of Auckland, and Tamaki Paingahira, Auckland War Memorial Museum. In particular, Auckland Museum is working with the Noises Trust to do some extensive survey work, for what they hope will be establishing a comprehensive baseline of the noise's ecology. And that's why we're standing on top of Rewapiki Island with a team from Auckland Museum, who, as I speak to Matt, are fanned out on the rocks or boardwalk, collecting insects and putting out tracking tunnels for reptile footprints. But it's no doubt that the main feature of this little island is the quantity of seabirds that call it home.
1: These guys are here from September to about February so that's why the boardwalk's been built here because the, there's basically, as you can see there's a burrow every uh, about square foot so if you even walk on the soil you're just going to be crushing ber- at the moment birds are on eggs or there's little chicks so if you walk around here on the soil you'll just be crushing birds and eggs and killing them and they're, they're very tiny.
2: small little burrows yeah. as well they're
1: small like well, the birds, it's home. about a 40 gram bird it's about, slightly heavier than a sparrow but with long long legs
2: and these are the ones that you see walking on water?
1: They are, they, yeah, yeah. They're sometimes called the Jesus birds. They're generally, you see them on the gulf further out. So you won't see them around the noises or the inner gulf, but they, as dusk arrives, they, the numbers start building up pretty quick. They come in from the open ocean and they feed on um, zooplankton and little marine invertebrates, just picking it off the surface. They stay on the wing and they dip. Uh, they, they stay in flight and they sort of... Um, Skip with their feet touching the water. It's quite. That's they're called Jesus birds. They're really beautiful.
2: And numbers-wise, I mean, five thousand five hundred. Can that number go up? How many more burrows can the island
1: take? <laughs> good, good question. Uh, there's more room. There's certainly more room down the, the sides of the slopes. Uh, but also, as we hope to show you later on, we've got a, a plan on Otata which is predator-free to try and attract storm petrels back to that island using a seabird sound system that plays their calls at night. We've had some success at attracting birds back there but they're yet to breed so there's more habitat for them to occupy and the thing is the birds these guys aren't limited by food because they're moving out to the edge of the gulf and to the open ocean so they've got a huge foraging habitat out there they're, they're not really foraging locally it's just they come to these precious little islands just to have somewhere safe because they're so tiny you can imagine what a rat would do to them. Be yum yum yum.
2: Tata Island is the main island in the Noises group, and where we're based during our few days out here. Today we've taken the opportunity of a calm and sunny day to boat out to nearby Ruapuke as part of the survey effort. Sue tells me that with the rats gone, the current ongoing battle on Ruapuke is with invasive weeds. And one in particular. The one that's
0: flowering right now, it's called Mile a Minute mm. Dipogam Lignosis. And it has white flowers and it has pink flowers, but whichever colour, it's a complete mongrel. It's all
2: over, I can it, see it behind. Mylaman is
0: a really good name for it because man does it grow fast.
2: An evergreen perennial climbing vine. I can see its small pea-like flowers and bright green triangular leaves smothering the vegetation around us. Every year when there's a gap in the resident seabird breeding times, Sue and others come on here to do what they can to pull and chop and wrangle the mile a minute back. And that would have all been out of that canopy in
0: April, early May, and that's what it's done since then. Um, in fact, you really couldn't see it. We'd, we'd done a great job on it, but of course you just missed the odd tendril and off it goes again. And the seed bank that's in here by now is going to take years. Alternatively, um, you know what we're trying to do is re-establish the vegetation cover over the whole island because then that helps exclude the light. And when the seabirds come in, they're in such huge numbers that when they land and they run through the underneath the, the plants, they actually grub it out themselves, which is fantastic. So they do your job for you partly. There was also another really horrible weed here called boxthorn, and we had help with that. There was a trust called Tenehiri that was contracted by Auckland Council, and my brother and they, back in about 2002, 2003, nailed that. But it's, it's this woody plant with massive spines on it, mm. and the birds, these little storm petrels, the white-faced storm petrels are get impaled on it. And it was a horrible job getting rid of it. And it still comes back, you know, it's tenacious as anything. So we it's an ongoing battle, but it's nothing like it was.
2: The vegetation on the top of the island was removed in the 50s when Maritime New Zealand installed a light here. That may also have been when the rats and weeds came ashore. But Sue and others are now working to support the regrowth of that native vegetation in this rich soil fed by vast amounts of bird guano. They've done it by relocating plants from other areas of the island.
0: I'd love to see it back in indigenous vegetation cover because it's really special. There's not a lot of plants that can handle that incredibly, incredibly rich nutrient-laden environment, but the ones that do handle it spectacularly and there's some really quite special things on this island. Um, The added... Wonderful advantage of having this incredibly nutrient rich environment is that it feeds down in the rain into the near shore, into the marine environment. So you get that nutrient enrichment from the land that feeds the intertidal and also round just the near shore environment around the island. And you can see that when you walk around the intertidal rocks, they're really spectacular. And that's that land-sea connection that's so important. You know, you, you can't protect one without the other. Because if you do, you've only
2: done half the job. And because this is a big story, I've split it in half. So this is the first of two episodes about the Noises Islands. This week, sticking to the land. Next week, delving into the ocean. Because right now, Sue and the team from Auckland Museum are surveying for what they hope will form a before baseline. They have a plan to continue to survey for a decade to monitor any changes after what they hope is coming. Marine protection for the Noises Islands area. Sue sees that as the next vital step in a long history for her family and the islands in supporting conservation research and action. Because not only was Maria Island Ruapuke the first site of rat eradication, but a second noises island also had an important role to play in helping the early days of pest control. Motu Horopapa sits not far away from the main island. Shaped like a lobster with one slightly longer pincer, its rocky shoreline gives way to indigenous forest and scrub, including Pahutakawa, koe, koe and Karo. Tracks through the bush lead from the small cove that we land at to the different arms of the island. Sue Severin Hannum of Auckland Museum and I follow one down to where an old rundown hut sits. Rundown, but not empty. Oh, there's a lot of poo. A
0: lot of widows.
2: And there's a few bodies. It's a wooden hut with bunk beds in two corners and a bench with a sink opposite. But every surface, from the desk to the floor to the two top bunks, is scattered with brown pellets. wet a, a poo. So you guys don't
0: use that hat at all? So? Well, look,
2: would you? <laughs> <laughs> That's such a pile. It, it makes poo. you
0: realise, though, how much that weta poo contributes to the ecology of the forest. But then when you've got the seabirds, the seabirds drive that forest ecology so that the weta punga can thrive. So, you know, it's this whole beautiful system.
2: And some residents are at home. Weta punga are the biggest of New Zealand's endemic giant weta insects. When fully grown, they can be heavier than a house sparrow. They've got roundy armoured tank bodies and long spiky legs. One sits on a beam in a dark corner near the roof, while Severine spots one that's gotten itself a little bit stuck.
0: Is it a lightbulb in the sink? Is it dropped in the sink? No. Why, really? oh, you poor little thing. Let's out. Is he alive? Mm-hmm. Come on. Give her a hand. She's not big. I'll put her inside. Mm. Poor little thing. Oh, this is
2: a good one. Yeah. So the Wetapunga have taken over, a dream little hideaway if you're into endangered giant insects, a house of horrors if you're not a fan of long-legged creepy crawlies, or if you enjoy any level of cleanliness. But this hut was once used by humans, for a specific purpose, to get into the mind of the Norwegian rat. A sign beside the door explains... This island is being used to study the effects of nori rats on native plants and animals. Please do not interfere with any of the markers. Can you tell me a bit more about this study?
0: Yeah, so late 70s, the Wildlife Service came out here and they lugged everything ashore. We helped a bit with some of that, and constructed this and cut track, this, this amazing grid of tracks all over this island and set to with botanists and entomologists and um, ornithologists and marine people. So they really understood a lot about the island and what it looked like back in the 70s. And it's fabulous because we've got those old documents so you can compare the forest then, what it is now, and, you know, a few other things and just comments that they made. And they studied them for probably three years, I think it was, before they finally eradicated them off the island group. So that was pretty special um, to find out what would happen when
2: the rats were no longer there, and stuff absolutely thrived. Having walked across it, there's no doubt that Motuhurupapa feels pretty special. The forest has a different sound – The leaf litter is thick and dense, the trees old, and there's this rich smell of humus and compost. So when representatives from Auckland Zoo's Wetapunga captive breeding programme visited to check its suitability, they reckoned it would do the trick. And they were right. Now, once Wetapunga were reduced to just a small wild population on Hoturu, Little Barrier Island, but with the help of captive breeding programmes and predator-free islands, they're making a comeback. Last September saw the first mainland release of 200 insects into Shakespeare Regional Park, just northwest of here. The initial translocation of over 1,200 juveniles to Motuhro Papa took place in 2015, and not long after, some were also translocated to Otata Island. But they're not the only giants of this island. In the leaf litter outside the hut, Severine is hunting for something. So we're looking out for, um, a, it's kind of like a really big land snail. It's a beautiful, um,
0: beautiful brownie shell. Um, you've seen quite a few that were washed along the path. They've turned white once they did. But um, but that land snail kind of leaves, leaves um, half hidden in the, under the leaf litter. And uh, it's called Placostylus. It's called the flax snail. Very cool, very cool snail. You find um, there's quite a few species. Um, Some in New Zealand, there's a few also in New Caledonia and Australia. So quite a cool little um, local snail. Apparently this population here was uh, introduced onto the island by Powell, who was a curator at uh, at Auckland Museum quite a few years ago. So
2: let's see if we can find some. (laughs) Arthur William Baden Powell translocated 100 flax snails from Archway Island in the Poor Knights to Motohuru Papa in 1934. Sue, Severin and I are, are shuffling aside the sticks and leaves to try find one, but we're just coming up with empty white shells, until I stumble across a long elegant shell in shades of wooden brown, almost bar-coloured, with a lighter tip. Yeah, I uh, looks beautiful. I, th- I think there's somebody yeah. home.
0: And there's definitely somebody home. Excellent. They're gorgeous, eh? They're really pretty. Yeah, they're a really, really pretty shell.
2: Yeah, it's... It- a lot more elongated than mm. a normal snail yes, shell. it's not like
0: your normal garden snail, it's, like, I would have it's way have more rep- conical.
2: Yeah, I thought it was more like a mm. seashell. It's
0: cool. Oh, excellent.
2: Snails found, trapping tunnels laid and insects collected, the group heads back to base on Otata Island. Otata is the largest of the islands at 35 hectares. The small batch that the Neureuters stay in is just a short walk from the main beach through the bush. A few small cleared areas serve as camping sites for the Auckland Museum crew. I've been given a space in the batch, with some friendly geckos as evening roommates. My home for the next three days. Tata has been predator free since 2002, which has allowed the plants, the insects, the geckos and the birds to rebound. It's part of what the Auckland Museum team are hoping to capture. Now and into the future. Their surveying work will take a week, with the different teams involved. Because the island can't handle a large number of people all at once, the botanists will come on a different trip. I've joined with the ornithologists, the entomologists, and those interested in what's to be found in the intertidal areas. On day one on Ōtata, I tag along with seabird specialist Dr. Matt Rayner and Ricky lee Erickson, a collection technician in natural sciences. They're checking up on the population of oi, or grey-faced petrels, that breed here.
1: Uh, We're up above Sandy Bay in the northwest corner of the island. Nice pahutakawa canopy, quite high, and mahoe understory. It's a fern.
2: We're just off a little track where the ground slopes relatively steeply, but amongst the trees and ferns there are little holes with numbered flagpoles beside them.
1: Yeah, so we're looking at these holes in the ground. What the size of a slightly smaller than a soccer ball, um, and the birds come in, crash through the canopy, and and go into their burrows. But when we we're here in June, there were tons of birds around. We banded about 30 adult birds around here, just sitting on the surface, squabbling, forming relationships, breaking up relationships, the
3: All of the, the drama, drama
1: <laughs> of the OI breeding season.
2: It's December when we visit, so the drama should have hopefully resolved into some successful breeding. And that's the job today. Check out these burrows to see if there are chicks inside. The burrows can go quite deep into the side of the hill, and the entrances are small. But thanks to a mini waterproof endoscope camera they've borrowed from the plumbing industry, Ricky Lee is able to get a look inside. This sort of camera burrowscope, it's a
4: very long, sort of like... Yellow cable, and it's completely wireless, and it talks to your phone. So there's an application, which will show you kind of what the scope is seeing. So at the end of this really long yellow tube is a little bit of black, and it's got a torch at the bottom and also a camera. So as you stick the bit of cable into the burrow, it will record whatever that's in the burrow, and you basically just keep following the darkness and. Um, try and find any flashing lights which is a blinking eye of a chick or a bit of bright
2: white sometimes is an egg. So you're going to get down low, stick your arm in there as far as you have to go. Yeah. And um, hopefully... Sometimes
4: a bit... I mean these burrows can twist and turn so it can be a bit awkward to try and find if there's any birds in here, but... Oh, yeah, there's an eye there.
1: Oh, yeah, so you can see see the eye. You're looking for the eye shine. Ricky Lee's looking, and there's a little glowing orb on the camera, and that's the eye shine of what hopefully is the chick. Yeah, it's quite deep. If you watch, you'll see it blink.
2: Yeah, because, Ricky Lee, you're up to your shoulder now.
4: Yeah, and I still can't... Some of the chicks we can reach, they're quite shallow, but this one is... Still quite a distance away from the tip of the scope, and I've extended as much as I can get to it, so we won't be able to get this one out unfortunately. Cool, so that one's done. Which one? Yep, which one next? We can do 24, it's right here.
1: 24 had an egg in it, and we banded the bird from 24. Oh,
2: great. If they're able to reach the chick, they'll pull it out and band it. And this is all part of keeping track of how this colony is doing. There are several hundred pairs of oi on this island, Matt says, with a similar number on Papa. They're one of the seabirds that have held on in some parts of the mainland. Matt has a theory as to why.
1: Gray-faced petrel chicks are pretty notorious for vomiting. And it, it may be as they're one of the seabirds that... Are still hanging on on the mainland probably declining but they're hanging on in the presence of stoats and rats and one idea is it is it because when they feel threatened they will power chuck a projectile stream of the most smelly disgusting oily vomit you can imagine and it just sticks it is the worst smell very acrid and it sticks, and so you imagine a predator like a stoke getting that in the face. And they're, they're all, that, those predators are scent based, that might be why.
2: Sounds um, like you're speaking from experience. Yeah,
1: yeah, working with the chicks at a certain time of year, you, um, you definitely develop a, a certain pungence through the course of the day.
2: <laughs> Their data will feed into a regional wide monitoring strategy on seabirds that Auckland Council is leading but they'll also use it to understand more about how seabirds contribute to islands such as Ōtata.
1: Most of these little islands, they're really low in nutrients. They don't have like big rivers and streams like on the mainland that bring nutrients from the mountains to the sea. So without seabirds, there's not much nutrients coming in. But when you have places like this with these burrowing seabirds, they're a major ecosystem driver. So they you know, they bring in nitrogen and phosphorus and, and sort of pump up the whole ecosystem. So on the noisies we're really interested on that process and how it will interact with potential marine protection because that's another nutrient pathway because nutrients get washed onto shore when you get storms and you get seaweeds and algal rack come ashore. So the sort of two interacting processes we're trying to tease out.
2: I leave Matt and Ricky Lee to their burrow checking and wander further along the path to the north end of the island to meet up with Josie Galbraith. At a specific GPS mark point.
3: Uh, So that was marked last year um, when we set up the the vegetation plots and uh, did our first round of monitoring on the island. The three plots established last year will be bolstered this
2: year with three more. Josie is a project curator in natural sciences at the museum with a research focus on avian ecology.
3: I'm monitoring the the birds at each of the vegetation plots by way of a five minute count at a fixed location so We just sit quietly for for five minutes and we record everything we see and we hear in whatever radius we can detect. So you can imagine like in a a dense forest, you're not going to be able to see much. So the majority of the birds that you record are probably going to be uh, detected by hearing them rather than seeing them. And you're able to do that.
2: You'd be able to pick out a call and say, oh, yeah, that's a...
3: Yeah you know, I, can, I can do that now, yeah I can do that now um, does, It does require quite a lot of I guess just, just listening and, and getting your ear and, and you know, years, of, years of practice really And I, th- I guess the, the main calls you can pick up quite easily but often birds will have a variety of calls So there might be some calls that you've never heard before from, from a species you're familiar with So you've got to kind of add those to the, the repertoire in your head of, of what you know And what kind of
2: birds are you expecting to see or hear?
3: Um, So we've got a lot of the little native insectivores around here so grey warbler, fantail, um, some of the silver eyes will be around There's not a huge diversity of birds on the island but there's I guess a number of natives as well as introduced bird species so in addition to those um, we might see things like um, chaffinches or blackbirds or Um, song thrush as well. And as you said, this plot that we're at,
2: it's also a vegetation plot and it's an entomology plot. It's the same plot.
3: Um, Yeah, so the vegetation plots, well we're using the, the plots not just for vegetation sampling but for monitoring all biodiversity in those sites, so then you can look at relationships between different types of biodiversity in those same places. So how do the birds relate to the the plants, and how do the insects relate to the birds? And And this is the start of what's
2: planned to be long-term monitoring, so what's the hope?
3: Ultimately with this kind of monitoring, you want to build up a a data set over many years that you can look for trends in that data, and you can look at changes over time. You can see if things are going in a direction that you uh, hope they'll go in terms of conservation, Or perhaps you know look at look at those changes that are happening that we would prefer didn't happen with with climate change or or you know our changing world around us. So it gives you some kind of marker of yeah, the direction things are heading in and you know data set as well for for those scientists in the future that are gonna be coming along after us.
2: And as soon Neureutter hopes, keeping track of changes that might happen if the area around the Noises Islands is placed under marine protection.
0: I'd love to see marine protection around it so that you've got that complete, you know, with the island to the sea and so that people can actually see the benefits that the seabirds will bring to the marine environment if you don't touch the marine environment, just see how spectacular it could be.
2: The story of why and how that might happen and what the impacts might be are coming up next week in part two. Thanks to Sunno Reuter of The Noises Trust and to Dr. Matt Rayner, Ricky Lee Erickson, Severine Hannam and Josie Galbraith of Tāmaki Pāinga Hira, Auckland War Memorial Museum. This episode was produced by me, Claire Cannon with help from Justin Gregory and Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by William Saunders and Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Remember, you can find and follow the Hour Changing World podcast on whatever your favourite podcast app might be. You'll never miss an episode that way. Plus, you get access to occasional bonus content and excellent science-related episodes from other award-winning podcasts here at RNZ. The show's website is at rnz.co.nz slash worlds where you can access our extensive back catalogue of episodes plus sign up to our monthly newsletter. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook where we are at RNZ Science. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Have a great week. Kjopai. Toa wiki.
4: Botox Cosmetic. Out Botulinum Toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.